book of Jeremiah. And so it's going to be awesome. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stephen will get one right to your seat as we uh, head off and start the new book. And let me get this out. And... Lisa, you've been on my iPad. (laughs) She's got... I'm not going to say, but all these other windows are open on this thing. There we go. Walmart, Pinterest. Wait a minute. (laughs) Now, Paul said in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 27, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of... Of God, and that's been my desire since I've been pastoring here. And so I have got just three more books to teach, and I could actually say that. So it's Jeremiah, Lamentations, and the Song of Solomon. So I'm excited to start the book of Jeremiah because I'm almost to the point where I can say, "Hey, I've taught the whole Word of God." And so uh, I'm excited about that. And so tonight we begin with the book of Jeremiah. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this night tonight, for this sweet time of worship that we can just pour our hearts out in praise and worship to you for how great you are and what an awesome God you are and, and Lord, how you, uh, uh, your, your everlasting love is evident in our lives and we praise you for that and we pray, Lord God, that you would bless our time together tonight as we start this book of Jeremiah, that you'd give us not only information, but application in our lives that would change us, draw us closer to you and our relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We pray your protection upon the kids as they, the youth, as they have a, a shoebox filling pie eating time tonight, Lord. Uh, just bless them as they go out and uh, bless your children downstairs as they're being taught your word as well. We give this night to you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, 60 years after the death of Isaiah, Jeremiah was called to be a prophet of God. He's called the weeping prophet. For 42 years, he preached, even though not a single person responded. But more than that, Jeremiah, as a minister, as a prophet, was called to oversee the death of a nation. That is, the Jews taken into the captivity of Babylon. I mean, could you imagine being called to a ministry like that? Now, we know as a result of all of Jeremiah's warnings from God, the people did not respond to God's message lightly or kindly, or to God's messenger kindly. His enemies tied him up, threw him in dungeons. His family and friends rejected him. Other prophets and and priests made fun of him. He was placed in stocks, beaten, humiliated, ridiculed. And yet, for 42 years, Jeremiah kept on proclaiming the message that God had laid on his heart. What, what What a minister... It's interesting to me to compare uh, Jeremiah's ministry with, with Jonah's ministry. You know, Jonah, you might call him the bigoted prophet. <laughs> Jonah hated the Ninevites, you know, initially tried to run from God's calling and, and God fished him out of the sea and, and eventually did what God called him to do. And, and when Jonah preached, Nineveh repented and, and uh, Jonah, he wasn't happy about it. He wanted God to judge them. But on the other hand, you have Jeremiah. And he loved the, the people. He loved the Jews. His heart broke for the people. He wanted to see them repent. His passion was their salvation. And sadly, the people rejected his message. Jeremiah wept over the sin and suffering of Judah. 
Stories told of two men talking about the respective churches, and one mentioned that his church had fired its pastor and hired a new one. His friend asked, well, well, why was he fired? Well, he spoke too much about hell. He asked again, well, what does your new pastor speak on? He speaks on hell too. Well, the friend was kind of confused and said, well, are you going to fire the new pastor too? The man said, oh, no, no. When the old pastor spoke on hell, he seemed to enjoy it. But when the new pastor speaks on hell, he weeps. Man, you see the, the difference here. This was Jeremiah. He was a heartbroken prophet with a heartbreaking message. And throughout the book, we'll see him weeping and crying and grieving for the people of God who had turned away from God. Yet faithfully, he'd preach and proclaim the message that, that judgment was coming to the nation of Judah. Now, the northern tribes have already been taken captive, and, 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 and Judah, not caring about the fate of her sister Israel, was rapidly pursuing the same course. Now, now why? Why would they do such a thing? Well, because they were caught up in such gross immorality and all kinds of carnality that was going on. F.B. Meyer puts it this way. In the streets of Jerusalem, the children were taught to gather wood while the fathers kindled the fire and the woman kneaded dough to make cakes for Astarte, the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings to other gods. The temple was the headquarters of Baal worship. Its courts were desecrated by monstrous images and symbols. For all the deliberate and willful sin, God wanted to warn his people. He wanted to call them to repentance. The best man for the job in Jerusalem would be a boy. End quote. So God calls Jeremiah to tell his people that they were bringing an avalanche of judgment upon themselves. Look now at verse 1 of Jeremiah, chapter 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priest who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the day of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So, verse 1 tells us, these are the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah. Hilkiah is also mentioned in Second Chronicles chapter, uh, in chapter 34. He was the priest who found a copy of the law of Moses. At that time, when that was going on, Manasseh was the, the reigned in Judah, and he ruled for 54 years, from 697 to 643 B.C. Manasseh, he, this guy was a wicked, wicked uh, leader, uh, one of Judah's monarchs. He encouraged idolatry. He was the guy that even brought idolatry into the temple itself. And during the time of Manasseh, the law of Moses was really became a relic. It was lost. It was assumed that all the copies of the law uh, had been destroyed. But years uh, later, one day, as Hilkiah was, was rummaging through the temple storage, he found a copy of the law and brought it to Manasseh's grandson, King Josiah. And Josiah realized the severity of his grandfather's sin and immediately demolished the pagan shrines and brought the, the word back to the people and taught them the importance of obedience to God's law. So this is Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, and no doubt a friend of Josiah was, was, was proud, profoundly affected by this discovery. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Jeremiah prays, O Lord, your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And I think that's the same thing for those that, that come to the Lord for the first time and they discover God's Word and, and they're excited about it. You can't get enough of it. You, you read it and digest it and take it into your heart and it becomes your richest treasure. It brings joy and rejoicing. You know, it, 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 you understand how precious it is, especially when you read about stories 
about Bibles being smuggled into North Korea. I read one recently, and, and the people weeping for joy over the Bibles that they hold in their hands. Places where they're arrested, you know, and put into prison for just owning a Bible. And they understand how precious the Word of God is. Well, verse 1 also tells us Jeremiah grew up in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin. Now, Anathoth was a Levitical city 2.5 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah came from a family of Levites, a, a, a priest, and we know Hilkiah, the high priest, was his father. So he came from a tribe dedicated to God's service, and no doubt that helped him become the man that God had called him to be. The point is, Jeremiah needed an uply, a, a, a godly upbringing to prepare for the difficult assignment God would give him. And, and then verse 2, Jeremiah gives us the timeline he's writing this in. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. Now Josiah... Remember, he's, a, he's the boy king. You know, he took the throne at eight years old. But now he's 21 years old. And it could be that uh, the king and Jeremiah, they were similar in age. So Jeremiah would be about 20 years old when God first spoke to him. So, so these two men with this great calling upon their lives. They're probably close friends like David and Jonathan. Jeremiah was one of the godly influences in Josiah's life. And Second Chronicles 35:25 tells us Jeremiah was, was one of the mourners at Josiah's funeral. Verse 3. It says, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Now, the fall of Jerusalem was in July, August, 586 B.C. And Jeremiah would continue his ministry past the fall of Jerusalem and, and to at least 582 B.C. as he was with some of the people who went down to Egypt after the fall of Jerusalem. So his ministry will last some 50 years uh, to the nation of Judah. And in a sense, he was, he was there when the nation died. So what happened to Jeremiah after the fall of Jerusalem? Well, the, the, the book of Jeremiah records that he was taken down to Egypt with some of the refugees and the governor uh, after the governor was killed. And after that, you hear all sorts of goofy stories. There's a story about that Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant with him to Egypt, and there are apparently some references in the Apocrypha to this extent, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. There's another story that, that Jeremiah took uh, one of the young princes with him to Egypt, and then afterwards a young prince uh, you know, went to, to the British Isles, and there's those who claim, well, the, the monarchy uh, in Great Britain is a direct descendant of this prince and being descendants of the throne of David. And that, that also the people that claim that much of Europe are descendants of the lost tribes of Israel, like, like the Danish being descendants of the tribe of Dan, with Ish being the Hebrew word for man, thus a Danish person is a man from the tribe of Dan. The Irish, the, the, the British are all parts of the tribe of Israel. I like what Pastor Chuck used to say about that. He said, these folks forget that the word foolish also has an Ish in it as well. We really don't know what happened to Jeremiah from there, though another tradition has it that he was killed in Egypt. Now look at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Now we're going to find some pretty amazing verses of God's love for us over and over again throughout our studies through Jeremiah, like this one. The Lord says to Jeremiah, Before you were even conceived, I knew you. I like that. God knows everything about you, about me. He even had a plan for your life even before you were conceived. David in Psalm 139 verse 13 writes of the Lord, For you, were formed, you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. 
So if you want to know when life begins, according to God's word, at the moment of conception, even before Jeremiah was conceived, God had called him to be a prophet for him. Like Jeremiah, God has called each one of us. He's chosen each one of us. Ephesians 2 verse 10 tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the Lord tells Jeremiah, I sanctified you, ordained you a prophet to the nations. Now I would imagine Jeremiah was thinking, hoping to be like a priest, like his father Hilkiah, but God had other plans for him. Yeah, he, he was born a priest, but God called him and equipped him to be a prophet. Now, we need, need to understand the meaning of this word prophet. Often we think of prophets as, as one who predicts the future. But instead of foretelling, it also implies foretelling. The, the prophet declared God's word to, to, to the people, what God was telling him to say. Yeah, at times he was foretelling, but more often than not, he addressed issues at hand, calling the nation to repentance. So what does Jeremiah think about being called a prophet? Look at verse 6. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, but I cannot speak, for I am a youth. So he's got two objections. He said he wasn't an eloquent speaker and he was too young. Now he's probably, again, in his late teens or early 20s, and that's young, but it's no excuse. Now it's not uncommon, you know, for a person who's called by God to be a little reluctant to go, maybe even making some excuses. Sometimes we have a, a lot of excuses as to why, you know, God can't use, oh, God, you can't use me because of this or because of that. I found some actual excuse notes written by parents uh, to get their kids out of school. Let me give you a few. My son is under a doctor's care and should not take PE today. Please execute him. <laughs> Please excuse Lisa for being absent. She was sick and I had her shot. Please excuse Jimmy for being. It was his father's fault. These are funny. Please excuse Jennifer for missing school yesterday. We forgot to get the Sunday paper off the porch, and when we found it Monday, we thought it was Sunday. That's a good one. Please excuse Ray Friday from school. He has very loose vowels. Let that one sink in. I'm sure hidden within those notes are very valid excuses, but, but, but Jeremiah, he really didn't have a valid excuse. I think, think of Moses. I mean, he had excuses as well. Remember in Exodus chapter 4, Moses pleaded with the Lord saying, Lord, I'm not a good speaker. And the Lord says, hey, who made your mouth? Who makes the mute, the, the deaf, the seeing of the blind? Have I not the Lord? Now, therefore, go and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you should say. God's reply to Moses was, listen, I, I made you the way you are and, and, and you're going to do what I ask you to do. God doesn't make mistakes. And that's what the Lord is telling Jeremiah in verse 7. He says, but the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not, do not use that as an excuse. Well, I'm just too young. History teaches us that youth is never a, an excuse for not embracing uh, you know, great and grand ventures. Alexander the Great conquered the world at 23 years old. John Calvin joined the, the Reformation at 21 years old. Joan of Arc completed her work at the age of 19. Charles Spurgeon was called the boy preacher. At 19 years old, he preached in London to crowds of 2,000 people. I mean, if you look through the Bible, you see that God loves to use young people. Samuel comes to mind. So does David, just a teenager when he defeated Goliath. Daniel and his three uh, friends were young when they began their exploits in Babylon. New Testament Timothy, you know, he, he was a, a young guy. And possibly, in fact, Paul told him to get over it and use the gifts that God has given you to pastor the church in Ephesus and, 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 and use them with boldness. 
Young people have so much to offer and we just need to give them the chance to encourage them rather than discourage them for serving. And that's what the Lord does here. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. Do not be afraid of their faces. Why would the Lord say that? Well, no doubt Jeremiah had a soft heart and he cared about people and what what they thought and what their reactions were to what he said. He looked into their eyes and he would see their expressions on their faces. Now, what was a strength for Jeremiah, you know, would also be a potential weakness for him because that made Jeremiah kind of vulnerable to to nonverbal forms of intimidation. If someone rolled their eyes at him, you know, it may cause him to doubt what God called him to say. If someone gave him a, a disapproving look, it might have discouraged him. Maybe a a piercing scare would scare him. You see, a person who speaks for God to people knows how faces can be intimidating. And I understand that. You know, twice a week I prayerfully share God's word from here and I get all sorts of expressions. Now, if I had to gauge my success or failures from the looks on people's faces, it would be a roller coaster. I'd have ulcers. You know, I wouldn't know. Because there's times it would be very encouraging and, and times very discouraging. You know, shaking your head in, in, in agreement with what I have to say. Uh, yeah, all right, man. And laugh at one of my corny jokes, and I, I appreciate the pity. I, you know, I appreciate that. <laughs> have no expression at all, or roll your eyes and shake your head in disapproval. That can be very discouraging. Oh, no. Or falling asleep in the middle of a study can be a very, very disheartening. Now, granted, some pastors deserve it because they can be very monotone in their teachings and talk like they're a TV commentator on a Sunday afternoon commentating on a golf game. You know how that goes. And, and they're getting ready to tee off on the ninth hole. And you just like, put me to sleep. They get what they deserve. But see, that's what God says. says, Jeremiah, look beyond their faces. You, know, you need to have a little bit thicker skin here. God's spokesman should be immune from facial expressions. God wants Jeremiah to look past people's faces straight into their hearts. So he says, do not be afraid of their faces. I have put my words in your mouth. I like that. I, the Lord tells Jeremiah, I've given you my words so you don't have to worry what expressions, what faces they make. You just share my word. Do what I say. Hebrews 4.12 tells us the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. See, true power doesn't come from you know, just sharing your ideas and philosophies and, and words, but what Scripture says. And that's what touches the people's hearts. God's Word is what changes people's lives. Well, verse 10, God continues the calling of Jeremiah. He says, See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. I mean, notice the, the, the uh, responsibility that God has given to him. Uh, he's he's going to be uh, overseeing the nations. He's, he's going to be uh, announcing the destinies of kingdoms and kings. I mean, that's huge. More than the authority of a, of a president or prime minister, or some governor, God has given Jeremiah the total authority to say what's going to happen to these kingdoms and these kings. That's powerful. Now, mostly Jeremiah is going to prophesy negative things. And we read it here, to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down. It's always interesting because because destruction comes before the building. You know, demolition's got to come first before you can then build and plan. And, and because sometimes things are just so corrupt, 
so bad that before you can, can build, you need to just, just tear things down. I think of the church property we've been working on, and, and there's been a lot of tearing down going over there, and the, the, the demolition, and, 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 I, and I just, Lord, I know before we can build up, we've we got to get rid of this stuff and, and this bad stuff, and, and we're getting close to the building up part. But the same thing is true in our lives spiritually. God doesn't tear things down in our lives you know, just to knock us down. He wants to get those things out of our lives so then He can build us up and, and strengthen us. Jeremiah 29, 11, I think we all know it. It's a popular verse in the book of Jeremiah. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Sometimes before the, the good can be done, the bad needs to be rooted out. Now next, God gives Jeremiah two visions that help him understand really the, the importance of his ministry and what it will be. Look at verses 11 and 12. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. Now, almond trees in Israel bud in, in mid-January. This makes them an early producer. And the, the blossoming of an almond tree was an indicator that the spring had sprung. And so this almond tree that he sees, this vision that he sees, he sees it as a precursor because a symbol of things that are going to come. And this is really... You know, kind of the, the calling card of Jeremiah's ministry. He was God's last warning to the nation of things to come. The judgment was coming. Verse 13. And the word of the Lord came to me the second time saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot and it's facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come and each one set his stone at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. So God is giving Jeremiah this warning. He says, these are the things that are going to happen, a precursor of what's going to happen. And, and he gives him a vision of Babylon, like a boiling pot coming down and pouring into, the, to, into a destroying Jerusalem. Why? Again, because God says, because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worshiped the works of their own hands. I've read that archaeologists have actually found, uh, uncovered houses in Jerusalem that date back to Jeremiah's day. And in the rubble of those houses, they're, they're discovering lots of these little idols, not just one or two, but, but multitudes of these idols, little idols in each one of these houses. So the Lord says to Jeremiah, look at verse 17, Therefore, prepare yourself and arise. And speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, and against the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. So the Lord says, Jeremiah, it's time. Let's get going. Let's do this. But I want you to know it's not going to be easy. But I will be with you. So don't, don't freak out. God would protect Jeremiah through all his difficulties. Listen, there's no better place to be than at the center of God's will for you. This doesn't mean that you're never going to have problems and, and you're not going to get discouraged. But it does mean that God will always be there to protect you and he'll be with you. Okay, chapter 2. God has a message for the Jews in Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. 
Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in the land not sown. Here, is, as throughout, really, the Bible, God compares his relationship with, with his people to that of the marriage relationship. That's why the, the, the definition of marriage is so vital. God has given marriage certain spiritual inferences. Here God thinks of his own as, as newlywed years. When he first brought the Jews out of Egypt and, and their love for him was new and fresh, like newlyweds. They were, they were on their best behavior, trying to make a good first impression. Ever watched newlyweds? They write notes to each other and they you know, maybe write their, their names on the steam in the shower door or something. They do strange things to get each other's attention. They're constantly whispering to one another, you know, and they, they celebrate their first week of being married and the second anniversary and then the third anniversary. And, oh, we've been married a whole month now. And they celebrate that. And what did you get me for my, you know, one month anniversary? Oh, I got you this and that. And they celebrate it. And then 40 years later, when is our anniversary again? <laughs> See, a newlywed's love is, is, is passionate. But for some, over time, the new wears off, and for some, the devotion grows tired and old and boring. And, and that's what, what the Lord is saying here about God's people. They began to neglect their love for God. They substituted other God for Him. Finally, they forgot God altogether. And that's how it works in, in a Christian's life at times. At first, God is your whole heart. Then you let other stuff get in and, and crowd Him out. And before long, you know, you, you used to have that love relationship with the Lord. You just couldn't spend enough time with the Lord. And it's at that newlywed, that honeymoon season. And now, okay, y'all, we'll see you. I'll get into your word this week. Well, okay, it's been a couple of weeks. And, 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 and before you know it, you know, you, you a lot of other things that come into your life. You have no time for the Lord. In chapter 2, God says to Judah, though you forgot me, I have not forgotten you or forsaken you. And he says the same thing to any one of us that have moved away from that relationship with the Lord. Listen, uh, I love you. I've not forgotten you. Come back to that first love relationship, as he says to the church in in Ephesus. Next, the Lord reminds him of of the way it was at first. Look at verse 3. He says, Israel was holiness to the Lord. The first fruits of his increase, all that devour him will offend. Disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. Notice that the word was. Israel was holiness. And that's how they, they were. they were. They were set apart. That's the word holy means set apart. They were set apart for the Lord. But now sadly they've turned against Him. Verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me, have followed idols, and have become idolaters? God is saying, What did I do to deserve this? Verse 6, Neither did they say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that is no one crossed and and, and where no one dwelt. They've forgotten the Lord. You know, all throughout the book of Judges, you know, we just studied that not too long ago, we saw the people would, would turn from God, follow after idols, become slaves to these heathen nations. Soon they realized how awful it was. They hated it and then would cry out to the Lord for God to deliver them. God would raise up a a, a godly judge to deliver them and, and they would be going good for a while. But here now God says, no one's crying out to me anymore. No one is saying, where's the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt through the land of drought and the shadow of death? They're no longer seeking the Lord. They're so set in their idolatry and their ways and, 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 and they're not even looking to the Lord. 
And so the Lord again reminds them of what He's done for them. He says, look at verse 7. I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruits and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Again, God brought them to a good land. They walked away from Him. Verse 8. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. You know, the priests, they, they didn't realize they, they strayed from the Lord. They, they had drifted far from Him. They, they didn't even know it. And the Lord says the same thing for those who handled the law. They left God's Word. They, they've turned their back on Him. In essence, this is saying those who are Bible scholars, those who are trained to know the Word of God, professionals, they knew a lot, but they've walked away from it. They, you know, they don't even know me, the Lord says. And this reminds me, of many of our seminaries today that are no longer teaching the inerrancy of the Word of God. They're teaching things like, well, Jesus, you know, after He rose from the dead, there really weren't 500 graves, you know, that, that opened up and people walking around. That's just an exaggeration. And, and Jonah really didn't get swallowed by a big fish. And the sun really didn't set still in Joshua 10.13. And these are seminaries that are teaching students there that these things didn't happen. The Bible has errors. Here's a, a, a definition of inerrancy. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture was without error or fault in all its teaching, no less than what it states about God's action and creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. And the colleges all over America deny or redefine inerrancy, which then leads them to those who are given the responsibility to handle the Word of God correctly, have failed. And they actually don't even know the Lord as it was here as we're reading about in the days of Jeremiah. That's what the Lord's telling Jeremiah about, about the leaders. The ones given the responsibility to teach the law. They're blowing it. They've turned it uh, away from it themselves. Then the Lord says in verse 8, The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. And I like this. It's a play of words. False prophets are prophesying the stuff that doesn't profit. Verse 9. He says, Therefore... I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. And against your children's children, I will bring charges. For pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see, stand to Kedar and consider it diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Now Cyprus was an island west of, of Israel. Kedar was on the eastern edge of, of Arabia. From Cyprus to Kedar was like saying from New York to California, from coast to coast. Verse 10, God is saying, From east to west, all across the land I have given you, you've turned your back on me, the Lord your God. And he says, This stuff doesn't normally happen. Uh, you know, even among heathen nations. Look at verse 11. He says, As a nation changes God, which are not God's, but my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Even pagan, heathen nations aren't doing what you guys have done, he says. Uh, you know, and their gods are inanimate chunks of stone. So the Lord says in verse 12, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now first off, we need to realize that a cistern is not a female version of the word brethren. Okay, it's not brethren and cisterns. And secondly, we need to realize that this is not saying that cisterns that can't hold water is not speaking of female believers with small bladders. That's not what it's saying. A cistern was a man 
dug hole in the rock designed to collect and store rainwater. Fountain, on the other hand, you know, obviously is formed from under an underground spring, but a cistern collected rainwater from the outside. Obviously, a fountain is more reliable, dependable, because it had its own source, whereas a cistern needed for it to rain. And yet here we see Jeremiah accuses Israel of, of two sins. The Lord tells Jeremiah to accuse Israel of two sins. First, of forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters, and second, pursuing man-hewn cisterns. Broken cisterns. Cisterns that can't hold water. You know, they're, they're, they're cracked and, and leaking, you know, which were really cracked and leaky sources of pleasure. The people abandoned the things of God for things that did them no good at all. Have we not seen the same thing today? Jesus promised the woman at the well living water, spiritual satisfaction. He, he, he promises to, 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 to quench our deepest thirst, to, to, to satisfy everything. Yet, yet people, they forsake Jesus for man-made sources of uh, pleasure and sex and drugs and alcohol and, and video games and sports, whatever it might be. The world provides a high, but it's a cracked cistern. You know, the, the, the buzz subsides, the source dries up. The things of this world are, are, are cracked, leaky cisterns that ultimately fail to satisfy. But when we drink of the fountain of living water, Jesus Christ will, will never thirst again. Verse 14. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he plundered? The young lions roared at him and growled. They made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitants. Also the people of Noth and Taphethes has broken the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourself and that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Or why take the road to Syria to drink the waters of the river? See, the, the Jews during the days of Jeremiah, they were looking to Egypt for help. They saw the rise of Babylon to the east. They, they thought the answer, they, listen, here's the answer. We're not going to go to God. That would have been the answer. But their answer was, hey, let's align ourselves with Egypt. See, Noth was, was another name for the Egyptian city of Memphis, and, and men of Noth and, and Taphidus are Egyptians. You'll break your skull and steal your glory if you trust in them, is what the Lord is saying. Jeremiah asks, are you home-born slaves? See, a slave born uh, into slavery had nowhere else to go. His master's house was his home. Does Israel have no one else to follow? Of course, the answer to that, the response to that, of course they did it. The Lord, the Lord God. But they didn't, and now they're reaping what they've sown. So he says in verse 17, Have you not brought this on yourself, and that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in this way? Verse 19, he says, Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God, and the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. Here's a scary thought. He says, your backsliding will rebuke you. It's been said, you don't feel life splinters until you backslide. Shimmying up a, a pole is, is painless, but start sliding down a wood pole and you're going to feel the splinters. You know, life, life gets hard. And the same thing is true when we, we slide away from God. I like the story that Pastor John Corson tells in his commentary. He says, When my youngest daughter, Mary Elizabeth, was 16 months old or so, she loved her baby brother, Ben, who was four months old, who, by the way, is coming out on the 25th of November. Uh, John says, Ben loved to swing, and when he did, Mary seemed to always want to give him a kiss. But knowing that if she tried, she would go sprawling when the swing hit her. We discouraged her from doing so. 
One day, however, in her rebelliousness and iniquity, Mary Elizabeth didn't need heed the commands and guidance of her father. As Ben was swinging, she leaned in to kiss him, and before she knew it, she was laying on her back. Her backsliding caused her to be backsided. It wasn't a matter of my punishing her, but simply of reaping her, the consequences built into her disobedience. And then he says this, So often when people find themselves flat on the back and bloodied, they shake their fist and say, God, why are you doing this to me? But in reality, their calamity is simply the result of their own forsaking the Lord and ignoring his word. God is grieved when we reject him because he knows the swing is headed our way and we're going to take a fall. I like that. Lord says here to his people, your backsliding will rebuke you. Verse 20. For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds. And you said, I will not transgress. When on every high hill and under every green tree you laid down playing the harlot. See, when Israel entered the land of Canaan, they discovered the Canaanites had, had multiple gods. They bowed down on the high hills uh, here, as we read, uh, hoping to get closer to these false gods. They, they worshipped around the groves of these trees. Trees that were shaped into symbols honoring various fertility gods. It was basically pornography. And lustful acts of, of worship were, were part of their worship. So the Lord is saying some 800 years later in the time of Jeremiah, not much has changed. The high hills and the green trees were still in operation despite all that God had done to deliver the Jews' idols were still being worshipped in Israel. Verse 21. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? I planted you with high hopes. You'd be pure, but now you're nothing but a weed. You're your spiritual crabgrass. Verse 22. For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord. Even though Josiah brought the word of God back to the people, it didn't make it to their hearts. It's just outward actions. Same thing is true for our revival in our nation. It doesn't matter what new laws we make or what reforms are instituted. If, if the heart isn't changed, then it's only temporary. Verse 23. How can you say I'm not polluted? I have not gone after the bells. See your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary breaking loose in her ways, a wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire in her time of mating who can turn her away. All those who seek her will not weary themselves in her month. They will find her. So he's comparing Israel to a female donkey in heat. Her only interest is, is sexual, not moral or spiritual. And sadly, God's people were quick to jump into bed with anyone who told them what they wanted to hear. She wasn't thinking, they didn't, Israel didn't think about her loyalty to God, or the vows she'd taken, all she was interested in taking care of her immediate need for security and pleasure. I think from time to time we have to ask ourselves, do we do the same thing? Instead of waiting on the Lord and trusting in His provision, do we jump into whatever will satisfy us at that moment? Okay, well, well, I don't know what to do. When this first thing pops up, oh, we'll do this. It's not always wise to, to, to jump at the first solution to your problem. Much more important to, to wait on the Lord and, and, and know that the steps you take are of the Lord. Allow time for the Lord to work. Verse 25. Withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, there is no hope. No, for I have loved aliens and after them I will go. As the thief is ashamed when he is found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and the priests and their prophets, saying to a tree, you are my father, 
into a stone, you gave birth to me. For they have turned their back to me in their faith, but in time of their trouble they will say, Arise and save us. So Israel, they know it's shame, like a thief that's caught. They have this stupidity of bowing down to a piece of wood or a piece of stone. They talk to the wood. They talk to the stone. Yet when Israel gets in trouble, they turn around and expect God to help them. Listen, God desires not that, that, that he's, he, he's around only when we need him to bail us out of jail or out of the problem, but, but you know, only to go back and do those things all over again. He wants our hearts completely. He wants us to enjoy all that he has for our lives. He wants us for the long haul, not just when disaster strikes. Verse 28. But where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Let them arise. If they can save you in a time of your trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. He says, okay, you don't want to trust me. Let your gods save you. I mean, you know, each city had its own god. Often the, the god was named Baal in the city name. Like, like, it would be like Baal Springfield, Baal Nixa, Baal Ozark. Lord is saying, go ahead, let God try and save you now. Your God try and save you now. Verse 29. Why will you plead with me? You have all transgressed against me, says the Lord. See, they're trying to make a case against God. Like you can bring a case against God. It's kind of like those, those thieves that break into someone's house and, and, and they hurt themselves when they're breaking in. So then they turn around and sell, sue the people of the house they were breaking into. Because they, you can't do this. It's not right. Verse 30. It says, in vain I have chastened your children. They receive no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a, a destroying lion. O generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say we are lords? We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. What, what bride forgets her wedding dress? She's been preoccupied for it for months. God is saying, likewise, how can you forget me? But she has. Even when the Lord chastised them, trying to draw them back to him, they still rejected him. Verse 33. Why do you beautify your way to seek love? Therefore you have also taught the wicked woman your ways. Also on your skirts is found the blood of life of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but plainly on all these things. God here is showing how the nation, they've destroyed any hope. that The children following the Lord, he used a vivid illustration. He says, while seducing men, man after man, after looking to meet their own needs, these babies get in the way. Pregnancies get aborted. There's now blood on her skirts. And I have to say, God certainly sees the innocent blood on the skirts of America. The blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I mean, that's what we see with abortion. Sadly, since Roe versus Wade in 1973, the number is now at 60 million pregnancies that have ended up in abortion. That slaughter's got to stop. We need to pray that, that it gets to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court puts an end to it now. Well, look at verse 35, the response. Yet you say, because I'm innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say, I'm not sinned. Uh, I, I'm innocent. I didn't do these things. Surely, God, you know I'm not sinned. I'll plead my case. Now, I think about that, and I think about people today who think that they're going to do the same thing when they stand before God on Judgment Day. Oh, I'll just, I'll just tell God that, that, hey, I wasn't that bad of a guy, and, and, and God's going to go, oh, yeah, sure, come on in. You're right. It's okay. Yeah, come on. Everything's going to be all right. I actually heard Oprah say that one time on her, on her talk, show, talk show, that, that, oh, you know, God's not going to judge you. Yeah, yeah, come on in. Everybody's going to make it to heaven. 
Boy, they're going to be in for a big surprise. The Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Finally, the Lord goes on, verses 36 and 37. Why do you gad about so much to change your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. Indeed, you will go forth from him with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected your trusted allies and you will not prosper, prosper by them. Instead of asking God for help, nation kept switching alliances from one nation to another to Syria to Egypt. And God asked them, why? You think it's going to do you any good? You know, you, you think that, 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 that you can just go about thinking you can change your way by seeking to align yourself with some other nation and, and not me? He, he says that they'll be just as ashamed of their lines with Egypt as they've been with Assyria. They'll be carried away captive, their hands over their heads, over their heads. God has rejected these nations, so trusting in them isn't going to do them any good. You know, as we close, our God, our Father, delights in mercy. Micah 7:18 says, Who is God like you? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Our God delights in mercy. He delights in not giving us what we deserve, and that's mercy. He delights in giving us what we don't deserve, and that's his grace. And I think the lesson for Jeremiah is, is from Jeremiah is don't take it for granted. If God is warning you of some area in your life that you have to deal with, then deal with it with His grace and with His mercy before God says the only way you can learn is to be chased and you're going to have to go through this trial. Much better to, to fall on the rock and be broken before the Lord than to have the rock fall on you. And that's what Matthew says, Jesus says in Matthew 21, 44. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Always keep in our hearts humble before the Lord. God, don't let me drift away. Let me keep my eyes on you. Help me to have that, that first love relationship with you like we're newlyweds. And God will bless it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time tonight. Thank you, Lord, in the midst of the judgment that we read about that's coming and the hard-hearted of the people that are there, we can have hope, Lord, because we live under a time of grace and mercy. And your love for us is abundant. And we have many opportunities, Lord, just to... Uh, show your love, share your love, experience your love as we walk close to you. And I pray that for each one of us this evening. Father, that we'd be men and women of your word, Lord, excited about it, and, and, and Lord, uh, ones that share it. We don't travel from it, far from it, Lord, but abide by your word, abide in you, Lord Jesus, that we might glorify you in all that we do. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you've given us to to lead us and to uh, empower us to do the work that that which you've called us to do, to be ministers. Lord, thank you, Lord, that that we didn't live during the time of Jeremiah. (laughs) Lord, that we live in this time, Lord, where we have this opportunity to bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.